I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 93 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Kyle Hanselvan and Chris Biznet from Huntress Labs. Kyle comes to Huntress Labs from the U.S. intelligence community, where he supported defensive and offensive cyber operations for the past decade. He previously co-founded the defense consulting firm Strategic I.O. and actively participates in the ethical hacking community as a Black Hat Conference trainer, STEM mentor, and DEF CON CTF champion. Additionally, he serves in the Maryland Air National Guard as a cyber warfare operator. Chris is a veteran information security researcher with more than a decade of experience in offensive and defensive cyber operations. While serving with the NSA Red Team, he attacked government networks and systems to identify and remedy vulnerabilities. Chris is also a recognized Black Hat conference trainer and has taught Fuzzing for Vulnerabilities course at several events around the world. Before founding Huntress Labs, Chris co-founded Legal Confirm LLC, where he led product design and development until the company was acquired in 2014. In this episode, we discuss incident response planning, their early starts in offensive theaters, red teaming, ransomware as a service, small business and enterprise threats, breaking bad news to clients, holding leadership accountable, hacking back, tips and resources for startups, warnings for founders, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, Chris and Kyle, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you gentlemen today? Uh, staying out of trouble, Doug, but I see Chris right now and he's, uh, he's knee deep in it. Yeah. So, what, what, you know, what, what kind of trouble are you guys getting to this, this early in the week, but, you know, late July in the middle of a pandemic? Oh, gosh. So, so most people don't realize that, uh, you know, when incidents really start ramping up, it always happens at Friday at like 5 p.m., you know, when everybody goes home. Yeah. So for us, the week is just starting to tone down from all the incidents happened over the weekend. The clients are now well aware when they came in Monday morning that, you know, things hit the fan. And so that's uh, for yeah, us. A lot, of, too- a lot of cleanup happens on like Saturday, Sunday. You know, Monday is like wrapping it up. Like, all right, good. Let's move on. And then, you know, it all starts again on Friday. <laughs> I know people who, you know, have done far more incidents than I can ever count. <laughs> um, and some, and some, some noteworthy ones, but it, you know, people say, Oh, it sounds so fun. You know? And I was like, it is, it's an adrenaline rush, but they're like, you know, how do you get into this? I was like, well, first, do you want to see your family on the weekends? Um, because those mm-hmm. calls are like, coming at Friday, Thursday, five o'clock. And, you know, next thing you know, it's a wash until, like I said, until Monday while you're just trying to pick up the pieces, figure out what's going on. Yeah, uh, it, it's that realism, right? It's uh, until you look behind the curtain and realize it's, it's not as uh, magical as it seems like, uh, you know, in theory. Yeah. Well, how did you guys kind of get into the IR space? You know, there's a, a canopy of different things that you can get into from red teaming, pens, you know, you name it in cybersecurity. What, you know, what led you guys to more the IR side? Chris, you want to take this? Obviously, uh, Chris is on the exploit development side of the house. That was his background. You gaining initial access. And I was more on the, you know, implant development, maintaining long-term access. Um, but yeah, obviously incident response and defense is quite the change though. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, so, so like Kyle said, we were doing a lot of offensive stuff um, and, you know, it was going well, but like the question that we kept always asking is like, why is this, it's not that it was like easy, but it wasn't super hard. Like, why is nobody really uh, attacking this problem? How come it's not getting better? You know, we've had AV for 30 years. Why is like, why are we still seeing this like lame malware? And, you know, even though people have AV, why is it still getting around it? And so, we really started digging into that problem to figure out what is it that AV is doing or not doing that's causing them to miss this kind of stuff. Um, and that's really where we, we started to get a lot of the inspiration uh, for Huntress was, you know, how do we how do we look at the information and derive stuff without uh, doing it the same way AV does and does that work better? Um, and so really getting into a lot of the incident response uh, like like we were just talking about is is out of necessity is like we found stuff on our customers computers and then they said hey we don't know what to do can you help us and and so we were just kind of there 
Yeah, and and certainly, you know, they're you know, you kind of touched on it. You know, the, the traditional thing that you might hear from a lot of IT admins too is, well, you know, we we ran an AV scan. You know, we have our, our in house AV and we ran malware bytes, but we didn't find anything. Um, <laughs> yep. And you know, we we still deal with that after. God, you know, like I said, three decades of people just saying, look, signature-based uh, detection is just not enough. You know, when you look at client environments, you know, if you had to kind of, you know, explain how the sausage is made, you know, what some of your approaches look at things that are outside just you know, your traditional hashed signature analysis? So you can imagine everybody's gone to like, um, you know, we need to heavily use behavior-based detections, right? Whether you start throwing out the ML, AI, insert buzzword here. The idea is obviously something that's static is, is not ideal. So how do you be more flexible? But it turns out like by asking questions in just different contexts, like if for instance, I had to ask the question of this program is running, is it going to do something bad? I mean, that's a pretty ambiguous question, especially when you get into edge cases, like what if it's a Microsoft program running and it's doing something that really blurs the lines between this could be a system administrator or this could be something you know, malicious, it really puts that antivirus or anything that's asking that question of, is this process going to do something bad in a really hard situation? Um, on our end, we're like, can we just start asking these questions differently? Like, why is the program running in the first place? You know, when you start explain, you know, taking a look at those, you find out that where, you know, as Chris mentioned, like 90s were your first antivirus. We're on decade number three of antivirus, you know, that's been around. We're still trying to go from like, how do we go from 95% detection or 95% efficacy to 100? And that is like the world's hardest problem. Like I would not want to be AV company number 71 or whatever, uh, trying to figure that problem, but how do you complement other spaces? And what's neat about that is because, you know, especially like we work in the SMB. So most of these customers and most of these clients aren't getting targeted by like APT. There's no nation state actor going after the local chain of, you know, accountants or dry cleaners or whatever. It's usually just crimeware. And so what we spend more of our time is asking that question of like, look, while other people are trying to solve the behavior based, you know, last 5% problem, there's all these other people that are just getting destroyed by like crimeware and some of the stuff that's just offered in kits on the dark web, ransomware as a service. And it turns out you can be like extremely successful in these areas where there's just greenfield opportunity by just asking the different questions. So maybe that was probably our, you know, maybe the biggest motivator for us to actually pivot from offense into defense was to say, how do I take this offensive approach to other problems that aren't, you know, just completely saturated? Yeah, you kind of touch on it. I mean, there is a little bit of an 80-20 role there where, you know, it's like, the the bulk of the the things that that I think most responders see are they're not you know they're not these zero days where you know Russians and Chinese APT groups climbing through the wires uh, you know for most organizations and I said that that small to medium sized enterprise space are getting popped with RD, open RDP ports um, poorly configured VPN lack of multi factor in Office three sixty five you know so it's just you know, your, your basics, um, that, that are not in place, you know, from that perspective, how do you, you know, one of the things I've always struggled with, and I love asking the response, like, how do you kind of deal with that when you're talking to the client and say, Hey, look, you know, this, this wasn't a complicated attack. You just simply left the doors open and not make them feel like crap about the fact they just got popped for something that they could have easily prevented. Gosh, that's, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there for yeah. sure, Doug. In fact, uh, you know, one of the funniest parts that I think, especially being like so darn techie, um, it would be easy for me to start talking about the technical answers. But the reality is most of these businesses just don't see the business case to make security matter. So we, we've had to get a heck of a lot better at like understanding, like, let me inform you there is a business case and inform you like, like modern crimeware is a business. You know, some of them have affiliate marketing. Some of them have amazing like, you know, we're talking about ransomware as a service where they have acronyms just like SAS, but they have RAS. Oh, yeah. Right? The ransomware as a service, they're support boards. I'm like, gosh, can we just hire these guys? And I mean, Geo <laughs> no. developers are amazing. We, we work with outsourced IT teams that, that manage IT for, you know, 10 to 100 companies. And I would argue that many of them, uh, their support gets trumped easily by the, the crimeware <laughs> authors, you know, ransomware offerings or their websites. Um, you know, so I, when you're talking about RDP or how to make it, you know, understand that, you know, you're still going against like some of these age old issues of, but no one's going to target me because I'm not an adversary of nation state. And it's like, you're right. And the nation state actors got bigger fish to fry. But, you know, I have a 15 year old son who might be sitting in the basement in his underwear pwning you for fun. And that's the adversary you, you really, you know, the attack service is just um, 
not what you think it is and helping them educate. Chris, is there anything else? Yeah. I mean, Doug, Doug asked a lot of good questions in there. So. Yeah, I mean, it's really, I think for us, it's just like, it's easy for tech people to come in and, and people fall into this mistake a lot where they come in and they like, you know, shame the end customer. Like, oh, you should have done this. Don't you know that, you know, have an RDP open is bad and you shouldn't do this. Um, but like the more and more we talk to a lot of these uh, customers and a lot of the end customers, technology is not their thing. Like they don't have technology for technology's sake. They have technology to help them run their business. And when it's a small and medium business, they're very focused on their business and how do they make that next dollar? How do they get that next client, that next customer, close that next deal? Um, so they have a very different like mindset than when you go to these enterprise companies and, and you talk to them, you know, they have a whole CISO, they have a whole uh, security department whose job is to constantly look at these things, understand what risk does this pose? How do we fix this, right? Go to a small, medium business, they probably have like one or two IT people who are doing everything, email, password resets, Backups. setting up new computers, you know, trying to fix network and wireless issues, right? They don't have anybody who's sitting down and saying, here's our security posture. Here's the controls we have in place. Here's the controls we should have in place. Like they're focused on their business. So really what they need is somebody who can kind of come in, help them with that and say, hey, here's the problems that you need to fix. And here's how we can help you get there. Right. And and that's, you know, it's, it's talking in business terms. I think that's where I've seen a lot of folks that are, you know, take a technical approach to trying to uh, deal with security issues and say, look, you got, you got to talk to them in business terms, go in yep. there and say, Hey, we well, you know <laughs> cliche. I probably said in the podcast a million times and I took clients as I say, Hey, well, how do you, you know, how do you keep the lights on? What, what matters to you as a business? Um, and some clients are, you know, like, oh, no, no, we, we just need email. And then when you start unpacking and say, well, you know, what's what's the mission critical system? And they'll say, well, actually, this is one web app. I was like, oh, the one that you told me we should not do an analysis on. It's <laughs> Sometimes folks just kind of want to bury their heads in the sand. So getting them to kind of come to the table and it's, it's almost like this intervention where you have to say, hey, look um, – this is, you can't afford for this to go down. You just said here that you, you can't afford any downtime on it. So, you know, getting them to focus on pre-remediation, you know, really kind of hardening those systems. Do you guys, do you guys get, get into those situations too, where you say, well, look, you know, in, you know, in pre preparation, you know, here are the things that you really need to focus on. It's not this over here. It's that right here in front of you. I think what's funny about the word intervention is, you know, it always starts at like the baby steps. You, you kind of got to like unpack the can of worms before sometimes you can even get to the root problem uh, and truly get down to like, oh gosh, what's wrong with this? Whether it's, you know, security culture or lack thereof. Um, sometimes like, you know, Chris and I have both been at Black Hats or DEF CONs or RSAs and you just get overwhelmed by the amount of like snake oil and stuff there. And so what we learned, especially being like, you know, security practitioners, like we're never going to go down the FUD route. And so our next best was, well, why don't we just educate people? And we started getting like tons of folks that buy us like, it's almost like it was magic where we were saying, look, we're not going to tell you what's going on. We're just going to show you. So, I, I mean, I just did a presentation like the last week that was, we were talking about, you know, oh, the boogeyman in the dark web and what's the marketing and what do these like criminal forums look like? And one of our partners were like, could you just take screenshots next time you're on there so I can understand what does it look like? And so when we showed them these like eBay looking marketplaces that have reputation and ironically, I, one that was my favorite was a client, you know, keep in mind, these are like IT outsourcers or managed service providers. And they're like, look, I got a client, just like you said, they've got RDP open. They refuse to put 2FA on and they won't let us do an audit. That box probably has group policies that allow unlimited number of password attempts. Like it's just right to be brute forced is where I'm getting at. And he said, but ironically, your screenshot the other day, which showed somebody who had they had a phishing as a service. So all you give is the domain you want to emulate and they'll return you a phishing portal to register the domain for you. They'll take care of reputation. They'll take care of the landing page. And on top of it, not only will they go after the password, they'll grab the two-factor authentication token uh, to allow, you know, effectively to bypass temporarily two-factor. Um, and they said, I went and this customer has told me over and over and over that no, two-factor is not an issue. And I approached them and said, look, you are so far behind. There's already products on the dark web that are specializing in bypassing the technology you still haven't even implemented. And that was that, that eye-opening you know, for the company. They were like, oh my gosh, I, I'm not even on the current standard to, to get bypassed where, you know, uh, you know I, I'm behind multiple levels, which you could imagine the business risk at that point is way different when you realize that you're just... You know, you're waiting to be the ice delivery company that gets put out of business by the, 
uh, you know, the refrigerator or freezer manufacturer company that just because you didn't you know, pivot or update in time. Yeah. I mean, does that decline? Sometimes you find them getting dissuaded a little bit where they just feel like, you know, there's nothing I can do. It's like, if I, if I am two standards behind, you know, how do you, again, what, what are some of those baby steps that you get them kind of uh, eating that elf, elephant slowly? It's, it's tough. I mean, we still see a lot of people who are on windows seven and for them, the business case for moving from Windows 7 to even Windows 8 or Windows 10, they're, they're questioning like, well, everything I have works now. What's the problem? You know, and, uh, you know, and then, and then you tell them like, hey, well, you know, you're not getting patches, like you're probably going to get malware. And they're like, well, you know, it seems to work fine now. So don't I have antivirus? Isn't that what I buy antivirus for? So I should be fine. So like you said before, it's really all about that business case. You know, they're, they're not technology companies. They, they don't, um, you know, build technology. They're not in it. The technology just helps them do whatever they do. And so if there's no business case for them spending more on it, it's a really tough sell. And, and the best that people come up with is like the FUD route, right? Like, oh, if you don't buy it, you're going to get hacked and it's going to cost you a million dollars. And, you know, for them, they look around and they're like, well, you know, I know a bunch of other people. It didn't happen to them. So it's probably not going to happen to me. And and that's how they like make their decisions, basically. So that eating the elephant, right? That that's a you know the ideal example there of you know. So what you showed them. Now, how do you go a step further? Um, grabbing some innovation from the IT outsourcing world. I've seen two approaches that are mainly around their go to market. That once again was business case to help people digest this better. Um, for years, these IT outsourcers were offering. You can have bronze, silver, and gold package, right? Or maybe even platinum, but no offense, like you're either secure or you're not. Or and, and the idea that it's that Boolean isn't really that that real. You're right? you're secure till you're not secure. But where I'm going with this is they took out the options of I want to be partially secure, and we're starting to see many of them that are like, you get our security stack, and you don't get a choice what goes into it. Because to be honest, maybe we go with this vendor for spam today and this vendor for endpoint, but they start sucking. That's not your, your, you know, you don't care what goes into the sausage. You just care about the end result, which is, does the food taste good? Can I quickly recover when I do get pwned? Can I stop the low hanging fruit, right? At the end of the day, they care about the results. So I like that approach. What's also been a really cool tool. We've seen some of those IT outsourcers use for the businesses that don't want to move. They made it a business case and said, look, I'm your trusted IT and security provider. Here's our MSA and here's the agreement you're getting security. If you don't wanna go and you don't wanna follow my best advice, you need to sign this transfer of liability that says when there is an incident that happens, you're taking full liability for it. You're the one that's agreeing at this point forward, you denied my advice telling you what to do and we're not gonna hold it accountable. And that has been a big shift. Like you've immediately taken the technical geek problem and now all of a sudden made it to like a continuity of business and a real like business risk problem, which I think, you know, that's super sexy for as much as I love exploits or, you know, watching the newest uh, you know, hack du jour, I think it's way cooler to take a look when people find it, you know, creative ways to go from technology to business problems that make people take real actions. Yeah. The transparency and accountability uh, is always a big thing when I've done, um, you know, kind of CISO advisory work, they say, you know, particularly with the IT people, they'll say, you know, we'll just never get this signed off. It's like, don't sign off on, you know, don't, don't assume the risk from the IT level. Don't take that abdication, push it back up to the board level in the C-suite to say, Hey, look, if you decide not to do this, this is on you. It's going in the board meeting. And then all of a sudden people are like, Oh, wait, wait, I don't want to put my name on it. Um, <laughs> and it, it kind of changes that conversation. And I think that's, that is an interesting part of some certain amount of soft skills that I think that, you know, and I've talked about this with others on the, on the podcast, you know, about communications and soft skills being just as important as your technical skills within the IR world. Oh yep. gosh, that's, yep. that's true. But I, I love the idea, right? Everybody, when you got to put your name on or sign your name on the dotted line, it all of a sudden becomes much more personal that you think a little bit harder about. Yeah. I wonder how much some of that, like, lack of soft skills or, or not as good soft skills kind of plays into how many security professionals we have, but like the lack of those security professionals going out and starting their own companies and, and doing stuff. Um, because, you know, like you said, you got to be able to talk business. You have to be able to understand what, are, what is the use case? What's the return on investment and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I always wonder why more people aren't, aren't starting like cybersecurity businesses for all these ideas they have, but uh, that, that could be one, one reason there. 
Well, I mean, while we're on that, what you I mean what what drove you guys over that ledge? It's it can be a daunting task for anybody to kind of get out there and hang a shingle. Oh gosh, uh, yeah, naivety. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it it sounds great, right? To, I want to start my own company or my own startup. Till you actually do it, and you realize like this is huge. I mean, we're we're almost five years into it. Um, We've got 23,000 businesses using our software and we're just getting started, right? Uh, just getting started at the end of the day. So, but I think it, you, you have to have a point of inflection for me and probably for Chris. You know, we were at NSA and when we started exiting NSA was about the same time Edward Snowden revelations came out. We were, you know, fairly unhappy with some of that. But at the same time, like, you know, 10 years of breaking things for a living, you start asking yourself the question, could I be given back just a little bit more? And then you get foolish enough to say like, I want to do a services company or get really foolish and say, I'm going to build a product company. Um, but now five years later, you know, I, I'll kid and say it was foolish, but what's probably really neat is we finally actually have like, look, in the US alone, there's 30 million small businesses, you know, businesses under a thousand employees. Um, they don't have anybody cybersecurity. They couldn't afford somebody, even if somebody is banging at their door. And at the end of the day, if somebody was working for, you know, insert small business here, they'd immediately leave, you know, six months into the job and go find a much cooler, sexier place to work. So um, I'm happy with where we're at. I do think it was quite the change to, you know, to adopt and go down that route. What about you, Chris? Did you, I mean, similar? Or yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, when I, when I think about like what really pushed me over the edge is like, you know, I, I was working at a lot of these places doing cybersecurity stuff. Um, and it, it, it got to the point where a lot of things were really frustrating because they were always putting the money and the, and the business before anything else. Um, but I really did feel like there, there is a balance to be struck there between like, how do we make more money and how do we help protect people better or how do we provide a better customer's experience? And rather than trying to, you know, scree squeeze blood out of a rock and like try to just make more and more money, what if instead we provided like better customer experience, worked with them and, and, Ultimately, would that cause the pie to be bigger and, and actually, you know, even though we're making potentially less money on every deal, are there more deals in a, in a whole? And there was just, you know, some stuff around like, how do you treat employees and all that kind of stuff? And so I think I kind of felt like, hey, if we go and we start our own company, we're not burdened by any of these decisions that other people have made. And we can just like start fresh and we can say like every decision we approach Hey, how does this make sense? Like, what does this make sense for the employee, for the company, uh, you know, for us? Like, all of that just meant like once you do your own company, like you you make those decisions. So I, I think for me that was really the thing where I was like, hey, I there's a bunch of things I'd do differently. Like, let's go do it. Well, the beauty of it is you both get to kind of make your own hours now, and you have all this free time, right? I mean, isn't that the entrepreneurial dream? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, Nothing but downtime. Uh, Chris, quite literally, we 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 pushed out uh, you know an update to the, our security platform yesterday, and I'm pretty sure I saw Chris's last commit at three or three thirty in the morning. So, you know, I'll, I'll let you know. I'm, I mean, work-life balance is important at the end of the day, but you could imagine like when you have livelihoods or you're trying to make a bigger difference. You know this, Doug. Like, you know, the hustle sometimes, and you enjoy it. Like, to be honest, I'd probably do this job for free, uh, you know, if they let me. But at the end of the day. Um, you know, sometimes it just takes working those extra hours. What yeah. I think maybe, you know, what's crazy about, you know, the idea of business. So I've always thought about, you know, what does it take for us to be crazy? I then asked myself the question of like, you know, some of those, those slides I mentioned about like on the dark web, you know, I, I saw one and we were sharing about the marketing that these hackers use. One of them was next gen ransomware as a service. And I was like, oh gosh, they're getting defeated by their own terrible FUD and marketing yeah. in there. And what makes these hackers decide that instead of lone wolf operation, I want to run like some of them, like you mentioned, those, those, those as a service or the ransomware side, their affiliate programs are just as elegant as the, like the biggest channel sales models where they're saying like, well, me as the ransomware author, I'm going to take, you know, a 40% cut. But as you start hitting this many deals at this tier, I'm going to give you more and more revenue sharing and profit sharing. And now they're providing services that, you know, your exchange rates are now even lower and you've got better reputation and like, what made them get crazy enough to like start a business? Didn't they know what they're doing or that were they just as naive as us? That's how we say we're, we're on the wrong side of this. If we all just took yeah. entrepreneurs, <laughs> no, but yeah. it's, you know, and I think that that's part of it too, is that no matter what we, we, we it's, and 
the cliche that I've said again, it's, you know, if we called RSA, you know, a risk management conference and a business risk management, con- nobody would go. We want to use the no. word cyber. I use cybersecurity in the pocket. I mean, it's a sexy, attractive term, but the reality of it is, it's, it's about business. It's about money and the fact that attackers are monetizing this. And, you know, you have to kind of fight fire with fire when you look at it that way to say, hey, geez, you know, how am I going to protect my business from an- almost another business? Yeah. yeah, you know, you know what blew my shorts off this week was so we we've seen we've been there we've saw these affiliate services that's not really new you know for the last year and a half that's been kind of the the status quo and there's now probably a, a dozen or so of these ransomware as a service vendors out there but the one that shocked me the other day was one of the ransomware teams was trying to get more affiliates so they sponsored a fifteen thousand dollar competition on how do I um, you know effectively have new TTPs and new articles. And that was just a recruitment to get it yep. out there, sponsored by Lockbit. And I was like, oh, are you kidding me? Their marketing and their graphics and their landing pages for some of these encryptment, uh, encryption pages are undeniably better than some of the medium businesses that we support that have a thousand employees. And I'm like, oh my gosh, the businesses on the offensive side truly are winning. They're even better looking. You know? <laughs> Gone are the days of the matrix black and green background. And now we're seeing these super sexy graphic design teams with working videos explaining how their encryption is more effective. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's still a tough perception to get to people's heads that this this is a business for attackers. But you know, it's I you know I, I don't know how many of them you know go to Y Combinator or any other kind of startup school. But you know <laughs> what you know when you guys were looking at this too, like what were some of the I guess kind of foundational entrepreneurial resources, whether it was blogs, books, podcasts. What did you guys say? You know. I need to orient myself. I need to I need to get a B12 shot in the arm of how to do entrepreneurship. What were some of the resources that you, that you guys looked at? Chris, you're usually the salty one. Do you mind being saying the positive resources? And, and Doug, you know, Doug, everybody always gives, you know, the what are the positives? I think for maybe the first time I've ever heard on a podcast, I'd like to say, like, where are some of the places that it's BS? Like, what are the things that didn't actually provide value? Yeah, so, I mean, they're, they're, like you said, there's like Y Combinator. They got a lot of blogs. Um, they posted a lot of videos of like startup school. Those were really great. Um, Brad Feld, their his blog, venture deals for sure. The book Venture Deals. Yeah. Uh, I, I got to represent Denver. I mean, that's you know, yeah. some local startup yep. there. Yep. Um, I read a number of uh, Clay Christensen's books. Those were pretty good. Um, we did Mock Thirty Seven, so that was kind of really what forced us to do it. So we did a startup, a cybersecurity startup accelerator here in DC called Mach 37. Um, and they basically brought us in and put us through 14 weeks of like, let's teach you how to do business. And, and kind of their like thesis was, we're gonna go and take these people with uh, like technical chops and they have some technical idea and we're gonna teach them like the business aspect and then like let them go um, and then hopefully that will, you know, help, you know, everybody figure it out. And so we did that and that was, that was really good, um, just for kind of forcing us to do it. I think a lot of people, if they don't have that forcing function, they'll just quickly jump into like building something or making some product or something because they're technical people, they're, you know, interested in engineering and stuff. Um, but being kind of being forced to go through that and learn a lot of these things, I think helped us. Yeah, there, there's sometimes there's no uh, there's no substitute for just kind of doing it. And it's you know like the first time you sit you can sit there and get a you know, we, we talked before we record you know Dave Kennedy's got an amazing uh, Metasploit book, but sometimes you just got to load the VM and just dive in, and start breaking <laughs> break things. You yep. almost have to do that with business too. It's almost hacking hacking business. You got to figure out what works and what doesn't for you. But along those lines, are, are there you know, we, we just say there there are things that don't work, but is there any pitfalls that you would you would say hey you know dragons be here or stay away from this as far as giving advice to folks that might want to go out there and, and kind of start something. So I, I'm a huge fan of Dave and, and what he's done between binary defense and the trusted sec team. I think they're, they're marvelous, but even Dave would tell you, you know, he's iterated, you know, you, you typically on my end, I started with the services base, like, yeah, I want to do the services, the incident response. And then you start doing it long enough where you, you get better and you realize like, all right, I'm growing kind of a lifestyle business. And the, at the end of the day, the, you know, even someday I want to retire, right? Someday I, I want to have financial gain. And I think if you're not, you know, aligned from the beginning that this is a for-profit venture, you're never going to be able to make the big difference that you truly want to make. And so I think some folks tend to go down the surfaces route and I'm not, there's nothing against that. 
but it just depends on how big of a splash. Like, so for David, uh, Dave and the, the trusted sec team, similar to me and my, my startup that was strategic IO, we were services doing consulting, doing engagements. And it was cool, but the valuation on that revenue when it comes to acquisition might be one and a half to two and a half X, right? (laughs) You know, if you're really lucky, you might get a two and a half, right? But, uh, you know, as opposed to the product side where they've moved for binary defense, that was clearly a, oh gosh, I want to make a bigger difference. I can do it at scale. Software scale is a heck of a lot better. Same thing for Huntress where we ended up pivoting. So I generally would you know, you do one or the other. I don't think you ever do just services. And the, the people who try to do services with the product always are really thinly veiled services companies. They can never wean themselves off that revenue. Yeah. But for us, I would say avoid that trap completely, commit to it. And for me, it was nice. The experience I gained on the service side was really important. It allowed me to fail early. So this next go around, instead of me having to use the fail early, fail often, I'm just able to say like, yeah, I've already touched that hot stove in a previous slide. I don't, <laughs> I, I don't need to touch it again because it's hot. Yeah. I think so. As far as learning what you need, I think the part that we missed out on a bit, because we, so so to give you some background here, uh, we bootstrapped Huntress for a long time. You know, we got uh, 50K from Mach 37 as part of like the startup security accelerator. Um, and then we, we kind of tried to raise, but convincing investors at the time that uh, small and medium businesses and like was a big pie and was worth going after was really hard. And so we had to just keep going at it and bootstrapping for a while. Um, and so we were able to learn a lot, you know, just like Kyle said, by going to all these resources, reading other people's blogs, all that kind of stuff. The part that we really missed out on was the networking. So like we kind of did that and then we didn't really know many other founders. I remember uh, we talked to somebody who was kind of giving us advice. He was a, a CMO at another company and he said, okay, well, you know, what do your founder friends say? And we said, wait, Founder friends. What do you I mean need, founder? I need founder friends? <laughs> There's other people that are doing this too? No. <laughs> and and so we didn't, you know, we didn't have that community of people to kind of talk to and work with and stuff. Um, and so I think I think that like held us back a little bit. So I would say if you're if you're gonna like start a company or something, make sure you're finding other people who are doing it too that you can kind of hang out with and, and bounce ideas off of and, and stuff like that. But um, I mean, think about it, Chris. Yeah. Uh, Doug Song and John Oberheide at Duo took care of us big time. Um, yeah. We had Mike Viscuso and uh, Ben Johnson at, at Carbon Black that took really good care of us mentoring. These were close friends of ours and people that we knew in the community that took good care. And, and did uh, pretty well in their exits, I might say. So yeah, they're, they're good yeah, people. To have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, gosh, yeah. You take a look at their success, right? Duo at $2.35 billion, And yeah. then Carbon Black's VMware acquisition, I think, was a $2 billion yeah. as well. So yeah, two something, yeah. Yeah, not, not bad to get schooled by, by folks like Seriously. that, but you know, that's nice when you have real, I mean, look, we're far enough along in security, especially like our, you know, our first seed investor was like Ron Gula at Tenable, oh, Ron's you know, guy. so you could imagine and, you know, we had Marty from Sourcefire, uh, all these type of people within our area. I mean, we're just in a really lucky time that nowadays, like when it comes to getting advice, and when I said, hey, I want to give the salty side of it, the amount of people that came, Doug, was like, I want to be your advisor and help you through. Like most of the stuff, you just, you just go learn it on your own. Pick up a darn book. There's resources. And what's neat nowadays is there are billionaire security founders who can write zero day exploits, right? If you look at Doug and Jono, great examples. And they're humble as hell until you how to get there. Same thing with the Carbon Black team, Marty, you know, Ron. There's tons of these type of people now that we're not where we were 30 years ago when cybersecurity was like, you know, cyber meant something a little bit different when I was on, you know, IRC or AIM or something like that. It, you know, nowadays we actually have founders that are uh, willing to share with you, like, this is the pitfalls and this is where to avoid. So I'm stoked that the security community finally has that. Well, I think there's, 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 you know, when I, I, I have my get off, get off my lawn, old, old adage days too. It's like, you know, geez, kids today don't realize how lucky are where you can spin up instances of full servers either for free or a couple pennies and just run things, you know, where, you know, we had to, you know, try to figure out, okay, where I'm going to colo this server. Oh, I actually got to buy the server too. I need to get support. And it's, you know, you're $30,000 in before you even like load AVM <laughs> or even if you had, you might not have been able to load a VM, might've been all just bare metal. Uh, but but the opportunity now to really kind of test things and go to market is, it seems pretty incredible. Yeah. I mean, and it works two ways. Uh, you know, thinking about the crime where we saw some of these teams who announced, you know, I'm retiring, we're so successful, but then we see, you know, their code base and a lot of their nuances and people learning off those almost as thought leaders now in the crimeware world. Um, but you're right. It's never been easier to 
know, start a business, let alone something that scales as a product. It's also never been as easy to, you know, hack the pants off somebody with these, you know, exploit frameworks, whether it's in Metasploit or you name it, uh, or just good old fashioned PowerShell, right? Uh, you can get a lot done for little. So um, the time is now, right? If you're listening to this, please, the time is now. Do, do you guys think there's any particular un- underserved area of, of you know, cyber security and information security now that somebody's like, you know, cause it's always like, gosh, you know, everything's been done, but you guys probably see it all the time. There's, there's never enough to be done. Um, is there, is there a particular weak spot or a growing area that you would say, Hey gosh, you know, th- this is, this is something that needs to get tackled. Ooh. So I, I think a lot of these are the reinventing on user experience. People always underestimate how important user experience is. Like remember RSA with those tokens that you used to have to like wear around your neck and then you know duo now you've got your you know you just get a little green button that even my mom can figure out like i press the big green button to say okay or the big red x to say no like that user experience is super important so i actually think it's time to start reinventing a lot of it um in addition to it like um covid19 really changed a couple things like it used to be an appliance world like let me sell you an appliance that you hook to a you know a you know, some type of span port or something along those lines that needs to be on-prem, but how well is that protecting you in an environment where there is no perimeter anymore? You know, if you read Google's Beyond Corp, uh, you know, ideas, or how well do you protect those employees when they're, you know, in a coffee shop or traveling abroad? So the idea of technology that can follow you wherever you go, um, we're still not seeing budget for mobile phone, but ironically, I have more sensitive information on my mobile phone than I do my computer nowadays, but we're just still not seeing that appetite yet. Chris, do you have more specifics of where to or where, where it might be ripe? I think I've got one, but I want to hear your, you know, your thoughts. Uh, I, I didn't have, I, I was struggling there to come up with with any specifics. Um, but I, I do think you're right in that, like, I, I was listening to a podcast the other day called uh, Zero to IPO. Um, and they had Mark Andreessen on there and they were, you know, talking to him. And, and basically one of the things that he was suggesting is like, there really aren't any new ideas, like really, truly new ideas are very rare. And a lot of these things, you know, if you look at some company doing something today, you can look back five years, 10 years, there was a company that tried it. Maybe there was a company 20 years ago that tried it. And he brought up a whole bunch of examples of where like, you know, stuff long time ago, um, you know, was, was created or was tried. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not a, a, a good idea. It doesn't mean that it's not a, applicable today, right? Things have changed. Technology has shifted. Like Kyle said, people work from home. If you had appliances and the only way you were protecting your users is because they were behind your firewall and all that kind of stuff, well, now they're at home. What does yeah. that mean? Um, you know, so so ideas that may not have really been super viable even last year might now be totally workable uh, with the new situation we find ourselves in. Doug, I'll add my one, my, my, my billionaire advice that I wish someone would have beat me up. Uh, you know, if I was entrepreneuring right now, I would say as code. Um, and I know that's a real weird thing to say, well, invest or build as code. But what I really mean by that is like, for instance, we at the company are all about automation. There's only 30 of us. Keep in mind, I told you 23,000 businesses. It's what can you do with automation? And obviously all this new awesome, like, you know, on-demand infrastructure as a service is available. But we're even going as far as to the point like our CRM, when we're configuring options for our CRM to enable our sales team to do all kinds of like advanced calculations and mapping of data, being able to do that 100% programmatically or define a standard as code. So right now we're getting to infrastructure as a service where you can through software say, I want to be able to provision a network that looks like this. That same exact idea for quality that you think is very human intensive, like Chris just whipped out the other day using Terraform, a RCRM you know, configuration as code. And it was something that we took a step back at this and we were like, this could literally be a product. You know, the idea of, you know, people go in and you literally have the entire, like, for those that don't know, when you get a large, uh, you know, sales team or a large marketing team, you get these weird jobs that are just like sales operations, which means all this stuff that's really crappy that people can't do. Here's somebody's job to making it less crappy. Same thing for marketing. But it turns out, like, if you have an as code answer where you can actually define these kind of like configuration management, but for your own products and do that in a predictable way. That type of as code idea, I think, could just completely destroy the accounting world. Definitely that we, we've already done it on the CRM side of the house where we're like, this literally could be it. You know, find one of our employees who's motivated. Let's go spin out a startup uh, because that's that's where I would I would say. And then obviously that has huge 
security benefits because we all see like it's not I turned on RDP because I was you know a complete idiot it's I had a user that really had a need he's now he or she was working from home they didn't have a VPN license I just meant to turn it on once and I thought I turned it off but I didn't but if you had some sort of watcher or as code type you know configuration management that you could define I'm going to make this exception programmatically for three days and then that crap is automatically going off and you know three days later that is super powerful where that type of automation doesn't cost much work. And to be honest, that's, that's kind of like the ideal where I would say um, SaaS companies should be considering right now. Yeah. I mean, we, we, I think people underappreciate the word automation quite a bit and it, it, what it replaces is, is those, you know, kind of wash and repeat those manual things that people do over and over and over again. And I think, you know, when we look at the job wrecks that are out there in cybersecurity, you know, there's all these, you know, we're always saying there's a, you know, there's not enough people and there's no matter what, there's always, we can always use more, more bodies in there, but how much of that can be replaced by getting rid of those repeatable tasks, um, with some level of automation code or, or just anything other than a human sitting there doing the same root task over and over again. I mean, we know right now we're adding a thousand businesses per month doing it. So, I mean, the, the, the fact that we're having some success means there's probably a heck of a lot more success out there for others to grab as well. Yeah, truly only way to scale. Now, you guys you know, certainly had background. You know, I just want to touch on that a little bit too. So, so you guys had the NSA background. Um, and, you know, I'm sure you saw a, a lot of changes. You know, you've talked about the, the crimeware stuff, but also seeing, you know, when you, you know, deal with APT groups and, and state-sponsored actors versus the criminal groups, you know, how has that evolved and changed since your time at the NSA? And, you know, what, you know what, what's some of the things that, these attackers are doing different or possibly the same now. Chris, you want to start or do you want me to go? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Some of the things that have like come out of this that like when we were at NSA, like the types of things would never happen. Like for example, NSA has a Twitter handle where they basically dox other APT malware. Like they're, they're dropping hashes on there and saying like, Hey, we got this APT and we uploaded their stuff to virus total. Right, like that would have never happened <laughs> if we were there, right? Like everything was super tight-lipped. No, nobody ever told. Now, now we're out there. Like people are telling. So, like that kind of stuff is is yeah. cool. That kind NSA of stuff. leveraging Cyber Command for some of that, you know, leveraging FBI to do some of that type of stuff. So that is neat. That is definitely a difference. Um, I would say with the way that the actors work, right? Uh, you know, back when I think of all the, you know, the fun names that we talk about these actors, right? Uh, the equation groups, the whatever that people talk about, but, you know, it's, it's essentially become a lot more fractured now. There's a whole status of, I'm not going to make, wh why create a giant implant framework when I could just live off the land uh, or more misinformation? You know, uh, why can't I use somebody else's code or use somebody else's infrastructure? If they're a, you know, imagine they're an APT. What if I use that APT infrastructure to cut, you know, to uh, conduct my applications or my uh, assessments or my engagements with? Like, that's a whole different type of like misattribution that you now run into when you start operating at that type of level. I don't think the outside, you know, this is that's that's professional hacking at that level. That's where your whole job is to think of the crazy things that maybe the commercial world will become more familiar with. But you know, that's that's where this is going. In addition to it, why does it have to be the APT? Why can't you also scale? Why can't you outsource this to the crimeware groups and have them gather your data and effectively make them affiliates? That definitely gives you plausible deniability. And we've seen a lot of that in some of the, you know, Crimea, Russia, Ukraine type area of, you know, even the ransomware authors, they will specifically, the one I was talking about, Lockbit, they're, you know, um, you know, the developers are sitting there within that, uh, you know, CIS region or that, that region there of kind of the old Eastern Bloc countries. And as long as they're writing the malware, they won't get prosecuted, but it's when they start using the malware, they will. So they create an affiliate program. I get 30% of the revenue. You get 70% for actually doing the illegal stuff. And that keeps them out of trouble. So um, that makes it really well for a business too, that, you know, whether I'm, you know, nation state, US, why wouldn't we start doing that as well? Why, you know, it might be an ethical question, but from a technology question, it's definitely possible. Yeah, the ethics along a lot of this, you know, certainly it's an always an interesting topic that I'd love to see more discussion about because I've had Jake Williams on the show before and he's been pretty public in the New York Times and other things saying, look, you know, when we're doing these DOJ indictments of Chinese or Russian hackers, they're going to turn around and start outing our folks as well. And that happened to him, you know, we're, yeah. you know, in, in yeah. hacking back. So it's, it's outing and hacking back or like the two kind of, you know, 
salty topics, let's say, uh, when we start looking at nation state versus nation state, what, what do you guys look at that? I mean, where, where are there some of those risks that we might not be thinking about from either a government or law enforcement angle? Yeah, so I, I you know, this, this one hits close to home. Uh, Jake was Army, I was Air Force, um, but I both as a contractor creating tools, then more or less as a uh, military member using the tools. And I think everybody forgets, like at the end of the day, even with automation, there's humans behind this and there's real human results. And that was, you know, poor Jake kind of got drugged through the mud on this one, right? Uh, government not necessarily willing to stand up or acknowledge, not necessarily protecting. And then when you have a nation state actor, you know, doxing, like now there's real risks. Like there's countries, like when you engage in this type of business, there's no doubt there's risk, right? There's countries that I probably won't travel to, even though I love to see just because I think of like, eh, yeah, extradition might be a little rough there. I kind of don't want to end up in a black bag. I don't think it's that serious, right? I don't think it's like, you know, nuclear scientist sticky bomb type problem, maybe yet. But it is something like I think we tend to in government forget that there's people that have real mm-hmm. lives that could be affected behind this thing. The same thing with those, uh, you know, we, we were somewhere yesterday. I was hearing the story of the FBI arrest of the, the Guccifer II uh, gentleman. And it was talking about Father's Day. And ironically, the guy was walking his daughter when he was arrested. Um, like there's people that are behind this side. So I think where law enforcement and the government's going to have to figure out is if we're going to move and play in the cyberspace, and especially as things start moving where cyberspace is, you know, occasionally going to actually outer space as we have more satellite type things, we're going to have to start figuring out like where's the ethics and human boundaries that we're going to put. Um, you know, in war, that's very, very, very well defined, right? We are operating on articles like Title 10 and Title 50, and it's pretty clear of when we're going to take a human life, there's real rules for it. Um, I can tell you for me personally, one of the most ethical challenging moments was when somebody mentioned like, don't worry about the software, it's going to be kinetically uninstalled. And that effectively meant bombs on bad guy for a terrorist. And like, mm. that's a real moment where you're like, oh, this is real, Yeah, you know? You know, that, that, so I, I would love to see more conversation, but I think we're, we're just not there yet. Yeah. And, and I mean, uh, again, I kind of touched on, you know, what, what are some of your guys' views on, on hacking back? You know, do, do we remove some of that risk where, or do we add more risk when we, when we, instead of using, you know, there's always that worry of things going kinetic afterwards, you know, you, you, you launch an attack and somebody that says, screw it, you know, and this, this was some of the risks that we were concerned about before, before COVID with the whole Iranian escalation in the earlier part of this year. But, you know, is, you know, where, where do we kind of draw the lines around some of the, the hacking back situations? That's, that's another one that's deep. Chris, you and I always joke that, hey, we make a big exit. Maybe with some of our cash, we could always, uh, you know, help the next round of startups, you know, similar to Silicon Valley. But more than once we joked, like, you know, sometimes it'd be nice to just go back to CNO or, you know, computer network operations, mm-hmm. right? Doing this, uh, you know, for a living. But we, we've since talked about it and we we're like, you know, I really don't know if it's worth it anymore. Like people, you know, there's real consequences. And even though hack back, like, you know, maybe Chris and I could get it done ethically. You know, there's a, you know, both follow the, the lines. What was really interesting is we saw some of those NSA contractors that went and worked, uh, you know, in UAE area where mm-hmm. their work went clearly from ethical to very unethical, very, in, you know, we, us personally knowing some of these people as coworkers that did it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there's a thin line that money taints a lot of that stuff. So I, even though I would love to start up, you know, post Huntress, you know, if Huntress means to hunt them down for a defense, Chris, maybe we'd have to create an awesome word that means hunt them down for, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. offense. But uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, where I'm going with this is I don't actually know if I, um, you know, even though Chris and I are at that caliber that could probably get it done, I think the greater good for me personally is probably hack back is a bad idea. There's just too many people that wouldn't do it right. People would step on real intelligence and real law enforcement efforts to ruin the, you know, intelligence there. Um, and when it comes to attribution and all those, like, when you have nation state level capabilities, you have the ability to do proper attribution. No offense. I wouldn't even want Huntress to do attribution, let alone, you know, anybody else, you know, in their basement, just because it's illegal or it's illegal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if the government's not going to step in and step up for Jake, who is like legitimately doing it as part of a military thing for them, do you really think they're going to step up for you as like some company who's like, hacking back when china's like no no we're putting this dude in jail for life i don't know i don't i'm not gonna trust that for for me personally you know 
Yeah, I, I personally would love to see like Russia or China or any of those. And yeah, engaging in any of that business. I mean, nowadays, right? You see with both, uh, you know, US trying to extradite uh, CEOs of companies like what we saw with the Huawei and ZTE type things. And the same thing happened in the other directions where, you know, occasionally a US citizen will get wrapped up in some country's extradition to another country, sometimes just by political reasons. And sometimes maybe they really are a air quote State Department employee or whatever the, the cover is. But where I'm going with this is it's a big risk that I think by opening up Hackback, uh, it just gets murkier for us individuals. The government's not going to care. They're, they're at the end of the day, you know, um, they got to get a job done, which is making good foreign intelligence decisions. And uh, sometimes there's a reason there's a verb or a definition called collateral damage. Sometimes you're just the collateral. So I personally uh, would advise against it. Yeah, it's easy to sit behind the computer and then do all that. But the expectation that all that stays behind the computer, <laughs> no, nah, people don't play that way. Well, I think, you know, when you, when you look at some of the, uh, you know, certainly on the kinetic side, it's 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 very obvious, you know, to a degree, you know, who did what and when. There's there's guides out there for different ships and planes. You can look them up and say, okay, that was that. But, you know, you, like you said, the attribution's hard. And, and also weaponizing some of these things. You know, with, 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 you know, not Petya, we didn't, you know, that, that wasn't necessarily the intention of this thing to spread out as wide as it did. <laughs> um, and I guess that's my always, my always fear, too, is I say, oh, this is a good idea now, but we just don't, you know, we're, they're not going to sandbox it and go, go through a QA process for three months to make sure the malware doesn't take out half the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't work that way. Somebody's always got too itchy of a finger. And I used to do QA for that type of stuff. So I know just about <laughs> how much time that people spend on these things or the opposite, how little time. Uh, so yeah, mistakes happen. Well, great. Oh, Chris, Kyle, I, I greatly appreciate you guys taking the uh, time today. Where can folks find you guys on the internet? So I've standardized pretty well, uh, whether you're, you know, all my technical stuff is at Kyle Hansloven on Twitter, business stuff on LinkedIn. Uh, Chris, where are you at? Uh, at Chris Biznet on Twitter. Um, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, but yeah, you can find me there. Send me a message. Let me know. Great. I'll be uh, sure to put all that in the show notes and, uh, I greatly appreciate you guys taking the time today. Thanks so much. Huge yep. thanks, Doug. This was awesome. Thanks Thank for you. having us. Thank you so much for joining us today on cybersecurity interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.